Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of the Missing Stone podcast. This week, I was excited to speak with Kelly Borgman, Education and Outreach Manager for Project Coyote and a member of the Rewilding Research Council for the Rewilding Institute. I had an amazing time talking with Kelly, diving behind the scenes as a safari guide in Africa, protecting manatees in Central Florida, and why she chose to return to school for not one, but two masters. We then explored the work Kelly is doing at Project Coyote, managing the Keep It Wild Youth Education Program, the Coyote Friendly Communities Program, and the Ranching and Farming with Wildlife Program. I had an amazing time hearing firsthand some of the strategies Kelly has implemented to connect with people and discuss conservation strategies. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Missing Stone podcast, everyone. Today, I am extremely excited to talk to the Education and Outreach Manager for Project Coyote and a member of the Rewilding Leadership Council for the Rewilding Institute, Kelly Borgman. How are you doing today, Kelly? Doing pretty great. Not too bad over here in Des Moines, Iowa. Are you starting to get that cold weather rolling in? Yeah, it got cold for a little bit, but I think it's going to hold in the 60s for another week or so. We'll see. Well, if you'll hand some of that to those of us in Denver, I'd appreciate it. (laughs) We're kind of getting those first cold spells right now. (laughs) Yeah, that is the one good thing about being in the flatter region. You sometimes get these holds, but we also get high winds and it can get to minus 50 here. The worst we dealt with last year was minus 12. So I'll let you keep that minus 50. It's those wins. They're killer. Awesome. Well, why don't we just dive in today and start with the first moment or experience that really drew you into conservation and started this career for you? Yeah. I mean, I can't think of a time I wasn't thinking about nature and before I even knew what it was called, conservation. (laughs) I was so fortunate to grow up with an adventurous family. I'm the oldest. I have two younger siblings, a sister and a brother, and my wonderful parents even though my dad's like allergic to most seasonal allergies. He fully supported my mom's wish to have property where us kids could roam and play and just kind of have fun with our horses and the dogs and cats and go fishing. So I grew up on an almost 60-acre historic farm in Indiana, just outside a a small town called, medium-sized town called Muncie. If you've ever watched Parks and Rec, that is Jerry's favorite city is Muncie. And my parents, my dad's a lawyer, my mom's a, was a pharmacist and is now leading a local land trust. They just wanted us kids to have fun. So we didn't really farm the land. We appreciated it. So we would go out and plant trees in the forest. We have been restoring a meadow for over 20 years now, our own little, again, before we even knew rewilding, it was our own rewilding project, watching the succession um, of what happens from just grass field to a few trees to different flowers and diversity that grows as it becomes a forest again. We have a swimming pond, so we'd go swimming. I said we had horses, so we had trails all across. We'd go riding the horses. Eventually got a little go-kart to have some fun with us kids. And then on vacations, we'd go hiking. And I just really got that sense of wonderment and appreciation from my family. And so There was no doubt in my mind when I grew up, I want to do something with animals and nature and a little bit of adventure. So when I was trying to decide my path, I started out pre-vet, learned that that was going to keep me inside all day. So I switched to wildlife biology and I just haven't looked back. I did a very similar shift in thinking, probably about 13, 14 years old, I realized I didn't like blood. So uh, veterinary work was out the door and conservation was in the door. (laughs) Yeah, I am like an actual medical phobia of needles, but it's a control issue. So it's just me. So I had no problem giving the vaccinations to the dogs and cats when I was working as a vet tech. But the bigger problem was more just I, I was like, I love taking care of the animals, but I'm inside all day. I need to spend time outdoors. Well, do you have kind of a memory of one of those trips that really stands out to you for me my parents took it was just me growing up I was raised as an only kid and we went to Yosemite and hiked the high Sierra camps and while we were staying in a bed up in the mountains it was that first time that you carry the clothes on your back I was nine or ten years old I was actually really sick at the time but (laughs) 
it's one of those where you see that experience of getting out really into the middle of nowhere and that first memory of that and kind of that's one that I really hold close. So do you have any of those that really stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, in when I was younger, I mean, the difference between my brother and I is five years. So I and he's we call him molasses because he is just like the slowest part. He hates walking places. He's so slow. So we didn't really get to go hiking, like truly out in the wilderness a whole lot as a family. We were more water people. Grew up doing water sports, kayaking, whitewater rafting. And in fact, my mom and my aunt, who's my dad's brother's wife, so they're not blood related, but everybody thinks they are more than my dad and his brother. Juj and Deb are the best together. They always would take my my aunt's daughters, my cousins, and then my sister and I and my mom on these girls trips. And so those were more of the more wilderness trips was actually the women of our family all going out. So we have so many memories of getting accidentally squeezed out of the white water raft and, you know, swim in the rafts and, you know, they're yelling, feet up, feet up, protect your head, you know, that kind of stuff. Or taking our own kayaks down the switchbacks of West Virginia and my mom going, you know, guys, I think I could be one of those bus drivers that takes the rafts down. I'm real good at this as we're in like a mini Winnebago on a two track. So there's just so many of those like not one moment. I think it's all the little moments that add up over time, the campaign and you go on a hike and there's a localized rainstorm and you left the fly open on your tent. And now we're all sitting there having to use hair dryers attached to the back of the car with a converter to try and dry everything out, you know, stopping on a back roads to get gas and someone going, Oh, chocolate. Yes. Like that moment when you've been like hiking for days and on your own rations type kind of thing. And you're just like, <laughs> oh, my God, chocolate. Right. It's all the little humorous, fun bonding moments. So I don't think I have one trip necessarily that stands out, but just so many stories and moments that they, we just were like, we could write a book. This is just so many like laughter moments in our lives. That chocolate comment hits deep because when I did the John Muir trail, my dad did the first half with us and then Uh went home. And for my last food drop the last four days, he changed out all the protein bars to Snicker bars because he was (laughs) like, at this point, you lost so much weight already. Just throw them all in and enjoy yourself. And it was finding like 12 Snicker bars in the last food drop was a great moment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it, well, and when when we were younger, it was definitely chocolate. And now that we're older, we're like boxed wine all the way. <laughs> so, so how do you go from all these experiences that are very unique, but there's a lot of people who grow up in the outdoors and decide that this is a feasible career to try to work in the outdoors and protect what you love so much? Yeah, I think for me, the way I was raised was just like, what are, it's not necessarily what are you like passionate about? So many people are like, oh, I love this and that. And then people are like, oh, you should make a career out of that. And you're like, well, that takes the fun out of it, right? For me, it was this understanding of who I am at my core. I do not put in effort if I do not believe in something. If I don't think something's worth doing, I just don't do it. And my parents always laugh where they're like, yeah, we could tell when you didn't want to do something because you would just put in minimal effort and it just dragged on forever. But they're like, but if you're really passionate about something, you your whole heart and spirit and love into it and it gets done like a thousand percent. And so when I'm sitting there thinking, okay, what, you know, if I'm going to be 65, 70 or whatever, when I feasibly retire, what can I do? for that many decades of my life and continue to get up and want to do. And so it was conservation for me. It's such a diverse field, right? I can do education. I can do field restoration. I can do science. And so there's always something different to keep me on my toes and keep me thinking. There's wonderful people. There's new experiences and adventures always around the corner. And so, yeah, so I don't get paid a whole lot, but I get paid in a lot of good memories Um, and a lot of fun. Um, And that's what's going to keep me going throughout my career. And you started by starting work in South Africa. So you didn't just start by picking something in your backyard, you decided to go halfway around the world. So what is that experience like to 
find yourself stepping on to another continent to start your first job? Yeah. Well, my actually, my first job was in my backyard. It was at the land trust my mom now runs. I was their first hired staff person that wasn't the executive director doing land conservation. But that was when I was in school. And so I'd had this experience in undergrad where I got three weeks to go to South Africa with the school trip. And we talked to different rangers at Cougar National Park. And we went to different game preserves. And just like, I'm on the plane leaving. And I'm like, I'm like crying because I'm like, oh my God, I have to come back. I have to come back. So I then worked three jobs, went to school full time and was commuting back and forth from the family farm to save money so that I could save up money to get over and yeah, do some work for a game preserve, a couple of game preserves in South Africa. And it is, it is like nothing else. The program I was with, they bring in people from all over the world. So you know, everybody spoke English, thankfully, because in America, we really don't learn any other languages, um, but they all do. And so people from Germany, from the Netherlands, the UK, Japan, you know, are all there, all kind of in the same boat of, of learning about the different species and tracking and observational data and GIS and all these different things. And it was so fun, so different, and just a real eye-opener culturally for me to get to have that. That was when I first landed in, I did a month long internship in Namibia and then traveled around. And it was described to me as in Africa, English is the language of money. Everyone has their own language, but when you want to make a transaction, the language is English. And that was kind of an interesting separation to me, but it makes it a lot easier traveling there for sure. So while there, I found that there's the animals that you expect to see and fall in love with, but there's so many animals that you get to experience on a game preserve in Africa. What was the one that surprised you the most that you just fell in love with? Yeah. Well, I absolutely fell in love with rhinos. Somewhat heartbreaking story, which is that On my third day at my first preserve, there was a poaching incident and the, it was a mother and her, her young calf. And then she was also pregnant. And so it didn't actually kill her. It ended up deflecting. It scraped one of her eyes and then shattered her front shoulder. And so she walked several kilometers on a just shattered leg before they were able to catch up to her and eventually decided to euthanize her. So you lost the mother, you lost the calf she was carrying, and then she orphaned a calf who luckily was able to catch up with another group of young juveniles and stick with them, and he survived. But your third day on preserve, you know, we're talking about what happens. Like, we've got anti-poaching teams, we've got these big electric fences, we're surrounded by all these others, but we do have 22 you know, white rhinos. And so we're, we were a pretty big target. And then waking up one morning and, you know, it's like somebody telling you your pet died. Like they pull you all out and they have to explain what happened. And then we have to go and and be there and guard and do all these other things. And it's just really heartbreaking to see this big, beautiful animal. I know some people don't think they're beautiful, but they are, you know, dead because of human greed. I mean, there was, the horn wasn't even taken. She was absolutely senseless. And then six months later to catch back up with that orphaned calf who's with the group and you hear this high pitch noise and we're like, what is that? And we realize it's the calf. He still cries for his mother. He's been doing that. Every time we catch up with them, he's been crying. And it's just horrific. And so it really like, really made me look at these beautiful animals and see them as that and watch their families. And a lot of times on things, you know, we talk about the the carnivores and the packs and the structures of that, but rhinos have complex family units as well. It's pretty interesting to to learn more about them. So I just really loved that. Happier ending to the story is that a couple of years later, I worked for a conservation group here in the U.S. that has one of the most successful white rhino breeding programs They because they do it in pastures instead of other reasons. But anyways, I got to pet a living white rhino because they do enrichment to get them to work with the vets. And apparently rhinos like belly scratches and scratches behind the ears. So I got to then see rhinos that I knew were protected and that we're going to get to live lives in these big giant pastures and not have any threat of poaching. And it's just one of those life altering stories that really changed how I look at conservation. 
if you're talking about the unexpected animals, though, I really love the Impala. They're fun to watch. Oh, the Impalas are awesome. For me, it was the the horns on a kudu were so oh, yeah. much larger than I expected. They're huge. It just yes. took my breath away. But uh, you, walk how, you wonder how they walk around with those things. <laughs> yeah, I feel like they'd be taking out tree branches left and right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what was your primary role while you were over? Because you were there for six months or so. Yeah, yeah. So when people go on safari, you know, you'll have your guide usually stay in a nice lodge and they take you out and they will magically come across these animals. Okay, here's the behind the scenes view, the the behind the Disney magic view is that there are usually people out there whose job it is to watch over all the animals. We did it for research purposes as well as helping out the lodge and the and the game preserve. So we were always recording data when we when we viewed animals. And then we would send it off to researchers all across the world for for data purposes and research. But whenever we see them, we would call it in. And we actually used a special language that was cobbled from some of the local languages. And so each of the animals had special names, code names, their different behaviors, the locations, like it was all coded. And so we had to learn. And then you would get on the radio and you'd say, you know, in this code language, something like, hey, I've got the lion pride at the Big Crack Dam anyone want to come see them? And the whole thing was you don't want to pressure the animals. And so only two vehicles can be on location or lock at one time. And so they'd all then call in and be like, hey, I'm at such and such place or I'm so I'm this far away. I'm that far away, you know, and then they kind of figure out who's going to go see them. So they you roll up and they're like, yeah, we're just going to go check out the dam because the animals love to come to the watering hole. We'll see what we can find. The guide knows that the lions are there. You pull up and he's like, oh, wow, one of the giant male lions on our preserve. There's only one male lion on the preserve. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, this is such a rare treat that you guys get to see him. And it's like one of the females has an embedded tracker that we can like radio track. That like It's all behind the scenes magic. And so I always loved my sister came over one time and my parents came over and the guides love it because they know that I can hear the language. And so they'd often turn and they'd be like, hey, which of those do you want to go see? Like you know, blah, blah, blah. And then my parents are like, oh, what are we going to say? I'm like, no, no, no. You get the full experience of not knowing what we're going to go see. <laughs> I will I will work with the guy. We'll pick out some cool stuff, but you don't get to know. <laughs> That's the first interview I did was with Brian Chu, who's doing his PhD in the Masamara. And he was studying cheetah behavior. And he had the opposite impact where he was actually getting up and calling up the different guides to say, hey, where are the cheetahs? Where should I go do my research this morning? So he was getting that in reverse. (laughs) Yeah, in the Maasai Mar, which is huge, much bigger than the preserve I was working on. That's how you would probably do it because you you (laughs) have just like one or two lodges owned by the same people. You know, you've got all the different ones and the guides are out there tracking. And our guides did have trackers who would sit on the front of the vehicle, all exposed and get down and do tracking on their own. Because like none of our leopards had any tracking devices or, or other species, but our elephants, our lions and our cheetah all had trackers uh, on them or in them that we could we could find them if need be. Because when some of those go missing for a couple of days, you get a little worried. There's villages right outside the door. And there's been a couple of times where the elephants ripped open a door and we had to go herd them back into the preserve. So we need trackers on some of those big guys. Yeah, they're definitely pretty sneaky. And if you have any wild boar out there, they're going to be digging holes under every fence they can oh, find. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yes. No, we, I definitely, I said the elephants were our tricksters though. They would, we had to put out like electric mats and that didn't work. And I've, I got chased by an elephant, like that scene in Jurassic Park where the T-Rex comes out, lived that. It was three male elephants. They were not happy with us. So, you know, you get, like I said, you get a lot of stories. It's a lot of fun. Definitely. And then you kind of, took a complete 180 to go from Africa to the Crystal River in Florida to study manatees. So how did that transition come into play? So when I took the the couple of years off between my undergrad and my master's, one, I knew I was always going to have to go back for a master's. But when I graduated, it was just a wildlife biology degree. Knew I wanted to be in conservation, knew I wanted to be doing stuff with wildlife, 
really liked thinking about the interface between people and wildlife, that human-wildlife interface. And I just didn't know if I wanted to be a researcher or if I wanted to go into something else. And so I was like, I'm going to take several years. I'm going to figure this out because before I sink money in going for a master's, my parents paid for my undergrad, but they're like, anything above that, that's on you. So before I put money into a degree that may change depending on what I want to do, I should figure out what I actually want to do. So Africa was because I knew I wanted to go back to Africa. I knew I wanted to be in the field and, and see that. And as my visa was about to end, I'm like, okay, what's next? And so I started scouring the job boards and I was just like, anything that sounded interesting and that kind of had a little bit of that human and wildlife aspect to it, I applied. And so that's how I ended up in, in Florida as I was working as a, a technician for the Fish and Wildlife Service at Crystal River National Wildlife Refuge, it's like the only place where you can actually somewhat interact with Florida manatees. There's permits and boats and stuff and ways to do it. And so they were looking for someone to come in and help this research project to look at how and where and when people are interacting with the manatees at these springs. So that's why the manatees come in the winter. The springs, it's like 72 degree water year round. So in the summer, that down there, in the summer, that's cold. But in the winter, it's warmer. And manatees don't have thick blubber layers like we think of seals or uh, whales do. And so they come in so they don't get frostbite. Um, and they stay around these warmer springs. People will, they can't go into the actual spring um, when we close them because the manatees are there, but they can snorkel outside or they can kayak or paddleboard or just observe on the boat. And so we wanted to see when are the boats showing up? When are people coming around these springs? Is there a pattern to it? Because there's several different springs and we only have two law enforcement officers. And so we need to make sure people are we have a whole thing called manatee manners. So we're making sure people are minding their manatee manners and not harassing the wildlife. And so how do we effectively use our volunteer force who paddle around and remind people of their manners? And when do we need to have law enforcement there for more serious situations in which we might have to have someone arrested or write them up? And so that was my whole project. We did do a really good job at figuring out when like locals are going to be there, like fishermen with hooks and other things that might cause problems versus when are more of the tourists around. So when, when do we put people different places? It was really cool. And so, yeah, so that was, I was a human manatee researcher as a technician for the Fish and Wildlife Service. That is, we did the Crystal River tour and we timed it luckily perfectly with the cold spell where there was probably a hundred manatees where we ended up. And we were in the one county, I forget which county, that allows you, if they approach, to actually kind of stay where you are and yeah. reach out and touch them if they if they approach you. Yes. And several of them were huge fans of belly rubs. They just felt oh. like, I mean, sea cow is a very accurate description. They're phenomenal animals. Yes. Yeah. I always say, like, when I'm giving my, like, quick rundown of, like, everything I've done. I'm like, life achievement unlocked. I have been hugged by a baby manatee. I'm like, I don't know how much cuter. I've also been used as a scratching post by a manatee whose barnacles were dying because barnacles are saltwater animals. And so when they come into the freshwater, the barnacles will die and then it's itchy dead spots. And so as I'm standing there in my wetsuit, talking up to people on the boardwalk about manatees and why they're using the springs, I laughed every time you could tell when a manatee is about to sneak up behind me. So people start whispering, taking pictures or whatever. And I always go, so there's a manatee behind me right now. So we're going to talk about how a manatee can touch you, but you shouldn't touch the manatee, right? Like let them inter like interact with you. And I'm like, isn't that more special? Like that they chose you. And then inevitably I get like pushed forward because a manatee has decided to use me as that scratching post. But yeah, a couple holes in the wetsuit, but otherwise pretty good. <laughs> so from here, we've kind of covered your first two big experiences. When did you know it was time to go back for that master's? Yeah, so, so in the years after, I worked for the National Park Service as an interpretive park ranger. My job title was interpretive park ranger slash cowgirl. So I was a cowgirl in Montana for the park service. And that was all about interpretation. And that's when looking back on what I'd done, being like a guide and talking to people about wildlife in Africa, talking to people about manatees and how to interact with them in Florida and all that. 
And then really learning as an interpreter how to connect people emotionally and intellectually to concepts and ideas, that's when it started to click for me that, okay, research is great, but there's a lot of good research out there that people just don't understand. And I can understand it, and I know how to talk to people. So why, like, the perfect place for me is probably this niche, this spot that's translating and, and bridging that gap. And so I then I the wheels really started turning. Like, what what would that be? What kind of careers are in that? I then had the other job, conservation educator for the wilds in southeastern Ohio. It's where I got to see the the safe rhinos there. And I was a, like I guess I was a conservation educator. And so I'm thinking more and more about education and policy and like translating science into like actual difference. And that's when I decided to go back for my master's. So I went to Indiana University in Indiana, the Bloomington campus, and it was formerly known as the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. They've since renamed it, but they renamed it while we were there. And we were all upset about that. So we still call it SPIA. And it's ranked nationally and internationally for teaching about environmental policy. And so that's what I was there for. I got two masters. One took two years. And if you got two, it was just an extra semester. So it was kind of cost effective to get the two. Then I studied environmental economics and policy and conservation planning and design, a whole suite of topics that really prepared me for the stuff I do today. So then what's the big step coming out of that master's? And I guess if you'd like to also share kind of what it's like going through those masters, because having done one myself there, it's pretty amazing since you're trying to have your hand in so many cookie jars Uh, I don't know if you taught while doing it, as well as taking courses, as well as doing research, as well as possibly having an outside job. You're doing so many things within that master's that might actually be the best place to start. What is it like trying to navigate those two and a half years? Yeah. So mine was more, because I was going more policy, I decided to not go for more of a research-based master's. So a lot of master's of science, you're doing like a research project, like one or two, but a core research project, working with your advisors and doing that. Mine was more project-based. So I still had um, regular classes, um, about four, four different classes um, a semester that I would go to. And of course, you have just like an undergrad where you have some that you have to take in order to get, you know, get your degree, but there's a lot of flexibility in there. And so since I was going with the dual program with that extra tract, I decided to fill in on law classes. So the Maurer School of Law at IU is a um, pretty, pretty awesome um, school. And they partnered with um, uh, SPIA, our school, to allow our students to take their classes, um, which was really fun. So I got to take um, a wildlife law class that was amazing because you're taking it with law students, JD students. And so we're the scientists, they're the lawyers. And so it really taught me not just about all of like the Endangered Species Act and Roberts and all these others, but it also really taught me about how to work with lawyers, which has been helpful, especially, you know, when, you know, Project Coyote is doing litigation in Montana and other places to protect wolves. Like, as a scientist, being able to understand some of the lawyer jargon and speak and be able to read statutes and other things like that, when we're advocating for these changes, it's really important to know those things and to be able to talk to the lawyers about, okay, if we did this or if we advocate for that, what would that change? So it's been really, that was an amazing class to get to have. And they'd pair us together. They'd pose us a problem. We'd argue and debate it. And so we'd be like the experts. And then you get the lawyers doing the like, you know, lawyer bit. And so that was really fun. But yeah, I did, even though it was project-based, we still would do projects. So like I wrote several white papers and did several like mini research projects studying. We had a whole class that looked at you were given a problem. So like for us, we did, you know, you had several throughout the semester, but one we did was like plastic waste in the ocean. And they say, okay, pick several different countries or major states because like California has enough GDP to become its own country if it wasn't part of the United States. And so we could use California or other major states as well. But they're like, look at all the ways they're addressing this issue through policy, do presentations and policy briefings and really analyze this. What could they have done differently? What do they do differently from each other? What's the outcome? What are the unintended consequences? And so it was just really interesting each semester to have these four different classes that allow me to dig deeper into each of these topics and debate them with my fellow students, write in-depth memos and papers, and just get really prepared for my eventual career. 
And then on top of it, yeah, I did. I did work. I was a data manager for a consulting firm, a wildlife consulting firm. And so that was really nice because I had a flexible schedule. They're like, here's the code to the building. Here's your workstation. We will pile up the data. You enter it. You make sure it's all clean. When it comes time for reports, you're going to be pulling data for reports, doing GIS work for us and stuff like that. And so it allowed me in the winter when they're not doing a whole lot because it's the Midwest and it's cold to just help them with reports and then go full time basically in the summer and make a lot more money that would help me offset the cost of living while I'm in my master's program. That's a lot of different things to be doing at one time. Did it kind of feel like a breath of fresh air coming out of that program and taking on a a singular job? You'd think so, but I graduated December 2019. So we kind of knew what was coming, but we had no idea what was coming. And so we graduate. Uh, my Some of my fellow students got jobs with big consulting firms. But having worked in the private sector, having worked for the government, and having worked for nonprofits, I knew I would prefer a medium to large size nonprofit for my first job out. So I took a little longer, but I, I secured a fellowship with Defenders of Wildlife doing policy research around funding for human wildlife conflict, which is perfect. It married all the different parts of my career that I'd loved so far. They, of course, interviewed, did my final interview right before lockdown. And so what I had hoped was going to be a great fellowship in D.C. where a bunch of my best friends for my master's programs were either working for like EPA or Deloitte or some of the other big you know names down there. I was stuck in Indiana working remotely. But that was okay. My, I got someone to, we worked on the lease of my apartment. So I moved back in with my parents on the farm. And I was like, okay, I'm going to save money because the next place I go, I, you know, like it's either going to be somewhere expensive like DC or I'm going to buy a house. And so I was like, COVID's not taking my dog away from me. So I got a new, I got my first dog then. His name's Rowan. He's an Australian shepherd. And I worked on my fellowship. And it was really nice to, to really, like I said, take all those things I've learned about reading federal policy like the ag bill and other proposed legislation and looking at it and saying okay we're you know giving so much funding to these programs and these programs have to spend so much well there's money here and there's money there and you know the purpose of this program is this you know and this could tie into that and and then making we made a landowners guide walking landowners through you know if they want to implement coexistence techniques on their land Here's how you can get the federal government to kind of cost share or offset some of that cost. We built an internal document to look at, okay, here's all the programs as you're working with landowners, as you're working internally on other projects, here's where you can get funding for that. And then we created pieces for our lobbyists to help increase funding to those programs or open up the stipulations to allow that to be used for coexistence. And so that was just a really fun and great experience to have. I was working on multiple pieces that I'd learned a bit about during my master's program, but now I'm actually doing them, actually making a difference. And so it was super fun. But that fellowship eventually ended and I got my job, my current job, which is working for Project Coyote. So that's a great time to transition to focusing more on the work you're doing today. So if you just want to take a moment to kind of explain what is your current position with Project Coyote? Yeah, so it's evolved as positions often do when you are a smaller dynamic nonprofit. So I was originally brought on, and I think my title was coexistence coordinator. But then a year later, my job title changed to programs and outreach manager, focusing on the Midwest. And now I am education and outreach. So it started with I was brought on with one other colleague to kind of focus on work here in the Midwest. And we were partnering with other organizations. And then as that partnership and everything evolved and changed and funding and everything, which is always what happens with nonprofits, my position changed as well. And so we hired other people. Our team has now grown and we're really having to look at, okay, we kind of grew pretty quickly. Here's what our core programs were. Here's where we want to be. Here's what our, you know, our team strengths and weaknesses and everything are. And how do we build and expand to fit who we are from who we were? And I love thinking about that. I I did a lot of stuff with throughout my career and in my master's program looking at nonprofit management. And so I love thinking about strategic plans and goals and program planning. And so that's why I was eventually programs and outreach. And now I'm formally over Project Coyote's education programs 
and our coexistence outreach program. So I oversee the Keeping It Wild Youth Education Program. So I volunteer educators and working with other educators to develop curriculum that can be implemented across the nation. We call them mini units. And so if an educator wants to teach about coyotes or wolves or coexistence with carnivores, we're working on developing that curriculum. So they'll be able to go to our website, download it for free, implement those games and things in their classroom to help teach the next generation of conservationists. I also oversee our Coyote Friendlies Communities Program, which we work with different communities um, across North America to instead of hiring um, trappers and sharpshooters, which just perpetuates killing and conflict, to instead adopt coexistence strategies, which are more effective, they cost less money. And actually, there's in most cities, most people want to choose coexistence, especially they may say, oh, we're trapping, but we're just relocating them. Nine times out of 10, they're not relocating. They're, they say that and then they end up, you know, euthanizing the animal or they relocate it. And because you've taken it out of its territory, it will eventually die. And, and that's not very humane at all. And so shifting towards coexistence um, is a better solution for everyone. And then the last program um, I kind of oversee is ranching and farming with wildlife. Since I came from a very agricultural background, I was FFA, 4-H, all that. Started at Purdue University in their ag program before switching and everything. So I have that kind of background. And so I love talking with ranchers and farmers to try and find solutions to the problems they face and try to minimize the harm that we do. So there's a lot of different areas that I want to go down from there. Yes. But to start, I actually kind of want to go back to where you began with that, with Project Coyote being a smaller, dynamic nonprofit. with all the changes over the last couple of years, changes in your title, changes in the programs you're running, what are some of the skills you've had to develop that you feel like are very important for being in that fast-paced nonprofit environment? Yeah. I would say, like I, like I mentioned, that my love for, for understanding strategic planning and programmatic goals and metrics has been a huge asset. I know it's one of the things that my team members will often turn to me and they're like, okay, you know, we were each given our programs that we oversee and they're like, we have to come up with our goals and our work plan for the next year, like writing smart goals and being able to think about like concretely, okay, this is what I want to do. How do I get there? So like for our ranching and farming with wildlife program, the whole idea is to change producers' minds from a, I need to kill coyotes to I need to coexist with coyotes. And so I, I have this whiteboard behind me. People on the podcast can't see it, but you can't. Usually it's full of these little staircases that I draw and I put a little stick figure at the bottom and, and at the top is what I want this stick person, this in this case, a producer, to eventually do, which is coexisting with coyotes. And I think what is every single tiny little baby step they need to do along the way and how can we help them get there? How can we help them get to the next step? Those are all the things in the program that we need to do. How can we do that? And so it's a lot of like just thinking and brainstorming and communicating and being able to concretely think about what each of those steps are. What is our capacity? What is our ability to do? And we always love to think big, but then we have to come back to reality and think, okay, what is it needed to implement that? So when you're going to be in kind of this, like I said, that dynamic, quickly changing, growing kind of nonprofit atmosphere, being able to think about programs and goals and how to get from A to B or A to Z and all the steps in between is really helpful because you're able to help the organization grow in a way that is somewhat organic, but is also very organized. Because when you just grow chaotically, you get mission drift, you get burnout, you know, putting in so many hours because you're trying to do everything or you're dropping balls. And so you're losing, you know, some of your reputation. So it's really important for me, especially as the organized person on my team, to be able to help people get there. Other people are great at other things. And so that's why it's also nice to have a really diverse team with different, different people, different goals, different backgrounds, experiences, because everybody is contributing to the overall picture. And so talking about those kind of baby steps that you set up, that's kind of a great transition. I'd love to take one of your three projects, whichever one you feel maybe the most comfortable with, and kind of break down what it was like to 
start that project and get that project, decide what steps need to be taken and how that project actually evolved versus how you expected it to evolve. Yeah. Let's start with, let's do Coyote Coyote Friendly Communities. That's one of our biggest and core programs here at Project Coyote. We're Project Coyote. Uh, While there are coyotes all over the U.S. and there's certainly a lot of conflict at the rural interface, you hear a lot about, oh, they're attacking kids or they're eating cats or all these other stories that people have at the urban interface. And so that's where our coyote-friendly communities does its best work, our more urban communities. And so when I first came in, it was, okay, we want them to kind of adopt a plan that's around coexistence. That means they're not going to go out and you know kill, kill the coyotes if they're going to try and educate people on how to live with coyotes. And so it started kind of because each community is different, right? And so we need to tailor everything. But when you're getting inundated with a bunch of supporters being like, hey, you should reach out to this community or that community or this one, or there's been conflict here and conflict there, we have to start using our staff time and resources effectively. So for me, it was thinking about, okay, where can we make the biggest difference? Where's some of that low-hanging fruit that will kind of also then spawn other trees for our project to start working on? And Can we have, instead of reinventing the wheel every single time, can we kind of build some structure into this so that it's still flexible enough for each community to be adaptable, but still gives me a starting point, gives, you know, my coworkers a starting point when we start working with these communities. And, you know, if we want them to adopt it from that moment of first contact all the way up to the adoption, what needs to happen? What do the communities need? What do supporters and volunteers on the ground need? What do we need? And so that's where we have now been working for the last year and a half. We're just about done with it, which is a model coexistence plan. So Dr. Francisco Santiago Avila is one of my coworkers. He's been doing deep dive research into all the coexistence plans that exist, that are out there, that other organizations and communities have done, and been looking at the hard science about what works and what doesn't work, how and why. And has been working with me and we're, we're just about done with our first draft of it and we'll get it reviewed and we're going to get it packaged and we're going to be ready to have this model coexistence plan and be like, this is how it should be done based on all the science and what's been done. This is science-based work here. We're also putting together, okay, we've got a reporting app because we believe that citizens being able to report anytime they see or hear or interact with the coyote so that the people behind the scenes can see where hotspots are. Oh, there's a den there. Okay, well, this time of the year, because there's a den, we know coyotes will display XYZ behavior. So it's a little close to this trail. I think we should just close this trail for these months. That'll allow the coyotes to not feel pressured. It'll allow you know, conflict to de- decrease in that area. We can make those decisions if we can see where things are happening. So we worked with some students out of Berkeley, and they created this reporting app for us, which has been really helpful. So we're packaging that up because, again, it's built to be customized for each community, but have some core stuff in it. We're getting that out. So we've got a whole lot of big things coming this next year that we've been really working hard on to, you know, from that base moment of like, okay, here's what it was. Okay, well, we need it to be here. <laughs> and how do we get there? And it's building building some of that structure, but allowing flexibility into these programs. So being focused on education and outreach, when you do reach out to each of these communities, are you reaching out to the same group, same members, or is that also custom tailored to the community? Yeah. So yeah, we try to look at, okay, what is the most effective, what what do we believe is the most effective path forward? And each city, each community might be governed differently too. So usually we like to see if we have any supporters in the area because on the ground advocates, people who actually live in these communities, it's always a great place to start. But then we'll look at news articles and we look at who's being quoted as the experts in these communities about coyotes, who is frequently showing up as being worried about them. And then we'll start looking at like city councils or other things and saying, okay, could there be an ally here that we could reach out to? So that's kind of how we do it. We have kind of a document that says, you know, like, this is how you start outreach for a new community. But it asks you to kind of answer these key questions. And then it gives you a kind of a go, no go strategy type kind of thing to do. So if you're hit ticking a bunch of these boxes, we definitely should be, you know, this is effective. This is going to be a good spot for us to start this work. So we should go and do that. Or 
for not hitting a lot of these target boxes, oh, that's a really hard road to, you know, to build. Maybe we should wait and monitor that and see if we can get some of these other ducks to line up where we know we're going to be able to be effective. So across your three projects, you work with a wide variety of different groups from private landowners, private citizens, governments, other nonprofits. How do you approach your communication with each group differently? What are kind of the steps you take when working with these different groups to make sure that you're going to have the most effective conversation with that person? Yeah. So it all starts with common ground. And that's where that interpretive background really serves me well. I always want to first figure out, okay, well, who's my audience? Who am I talking to? And what do we have in common? Because our end goals might be slightly different, right? We're an organization that doesn't believe in trophy hunting or really much much any hunting, but hunting advocacy groups, groups that don't advocate for killing contests, don't advocate for killing carnivores, but maybe do duck or pheasant hunting, they can actually be some really good allies, especially when we're trying to end wildlife killing contests, which is a horrible blood sport where people compete to kill the most coyotes, raccoons, crows, whatever, in a short period of time, usually like over a 24-hour, 48-hour period. They win cash prizes. They win money. It's horrific. We outlawed dog fighting and cock fighting. Why are we still allowing this blood sport? So it's one of our biggest campaigns that we do at at the government level and, and trying to pass state bans and even a federal ban on wildlife killing contests. But we found some hunting groups that are like, yeah, this isn't ethical hunting. This is not what a true hunter does, where you go out and you know your prey and you sit there and you, you know, this is not this killing, this wildlife killing contest is not the same thing, right? And so it's having to be able to go talk to hunters who have, again, very different end goals, right? But have a common ground and something that we can stand together on. Or other nonprofits who maybe are working with a completely different species, but we overlap with this idea of we would like to see more education and coexistence. And so we're able to, to collaborate that way. I work with all kinds of different groups and different people from different careers and backgrounds. And it's always just, okay, what do we have in common? Let's start there. And then my next thing is I, I try not to judge anyone. I do not know somebody's situation. And so when I'm tabling and talking to people and they're like, oh, we don't like killing coyotes. You know, I've been killing every coyote I see on my land for, you know, 20 plus years. I don't know why they're killing them. I I, I, I don't believe it's right. Science says that's wrong. But if I come in and be like, well, you're just absolutely wrong. That person is going to shut down and we don't have a chance to have an open conversation where we can share our experiences with each other and maybe try to influence each other. So instead, I kind of go into a bit of a, a spiel and I kind of look at the person because I'm going to tell you, an older white man is a little different spiel than, you know, younger Latino woman, like very different spiels you're going to be giving, right? And so again, it comes back to finding that common ground, not judging, being open, sharing my side, hearing their side, and knowing that we may come out with neither of us having budged or moved, but just having the conversation is progress. So that's kind of how I, how I approach a lot of that. So what are some of the most difficult conversations you've had, whether it's a specific memory or something that's kind of a reoccurring trope? I know working with Colorado Parks and Wildlife as part of their education team, whenever we're doing outreach events, we get somebody coming up who has a bone to pick with our organization as a whole. And you kind of have to feel your way through the conversation. So while it doesn't feel like it should be controversial, unfortunately, carnivores today in the U.S. are somewhat controversial. So what are some of those tougher conversations you've had to have and what are your strategies with them? Yeah, well, that part I learned when I worked with Fish and Wildlife Service in Florida, because you would think manatees wouldn't be controversial, but I mean, it's I love them. It's Florida. It's controversial. So, you know, I learned pretty quick because you're also the government and you are representing the government, and there are certain things you can and cannot say, and your personal opinion does not matter when you're in uniform. And so I kind of learned from those experiences the, the great art of listening and doing active listening. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been doing it this whole conversation, like using my hands, and I'm nodding, and I've got an understanding tone of voice or whatever. I'm not com confirming. I'm not agreeing with anything, right? But I'm showing that I'm listening to them because most times people just want to be heard. 
if someone is so upset about something that they're coming at you and spewing something at you, this has been building up with them. And they they need an outlet. And you just happen to be that outlet that day. That's bad luck on your part, but that's what happens. So showing people that you hear them, that you understand what they're saying, whether you agree with it or not, but you're hearing them, you're understanding, that's, that's usually what they kind of need. And then they can kind of go away. Because a lot of times, not everyone, I certainly know that in this country, but a lot of times people will realize that they're kind of embarrassing themselves and or somebody else will come up to them and be like, okay, dear, let's go like out of the way. Right. And again, I haven't, I haven't committed my organization to do anything. I haven't really um, fought with the person. I've just given them kind of an outlet. So, I mean, growing up with a bunch of cousins and in a big family who are all loud you kind of get used to that. And then, you know, you work for the government and you really get used to that. As you, as you said, when you work for the parks or the feds or whoever, when you put on a uniform, people will come yell at you. So then transitioning a little more back to Project Kai's uh, big goal with this carnivore coexistence, what are the best steps that you guys are trying to implement right now for coexistence with coyotes wolf reintroduction, mountain lions. What are those steps that you guys are taking? Yeah. So for us, the first um, and most important step is is education, um, which is why my position has all those different programs underneath it. Um, Because it's hard to accept something or coexist with something that you do not understand. Um, I think one of, uh, there's, I'm going to totally butcher it because it's a Jane Goodall quote and I'm horrible head for quotes. But it's along the lines of, in order to love something, we must first understand it. And so a lot of what we do is sharing coyote behavior and why they're here. One of the big ones that people often says, oh, yeah, I was stalked by a coyote. And it's like, well, it's actually not stalking. Stalking implies that they were trying to hunt you. They're not. They're curious. And what they are probably doing is you're probably near a den. And what they're concerned about, because they babysit their young puppies is that maybe it was a babysitter or an adult or a parent and they saw you get too close and they escort you out of the, your their territory. They're like, you're close. I just want to make sure you're going to stay far enough away and you're not coming after my puppies. It's not aggressive behavior. It's curious and wary behavior. And so that's why I was saying earlier, where if we know that there's a den, we probably want to close down the trails because if you're bringing big dogs who might bark or get agitated... If you're showing fearful behavior and translating that to the people around you or the animals around you, that's when you have a higher increase of a, of a conflict event. And so explaining behavior and the different timing that coyotes and wolves have these complex family structures, right? When you hear them howling, they're not calling, they're not calling out and saying, I killed something. Heck yeah, this is the best. They're talking at the dinner table, right? Like, so again, it's coming back and taking these kind of universal concepts that we as humans have and understand and kind of translating. I don't want to anthropomorphize the coyotes. They are wild animals and each individual is beautiful and has a right to live as an animal. But I also want people to kind of think about the structures and the things that are going on with these guys and how it might be slightly similar to their own shared experiences. So then the next question I'd love to ask is when you're working with carnivores, a lot of times you'll find that people will have one story or two stories that they've heard that they use to kind of reinforce their position. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you might try to share science, but that one anecdote is so strong for them that it's really hard to actually have that conversation. So what strategies have you found when in these situations to try to not necessarily contradict or counteract the anecdote, but accept it and then still be able to have a productive conversation? Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about not judging people, right? I don't know like all the anecdotes, all the stories, right? Sometimes they may tell them, sometimes they may not. So especially when it comes to people who are like, well, I'm out I have a, I have like sheep or cattle or my neighbor does. And every time I see a coyote, I kill it, you know, cause that's protecting them. And they tell me a story about that. I like to counteract that with other stories. So one of the great ones, it was not a story we collected. It was somebody else reported it, which is that 
there's a guy who was sheep sheep ranching and his coyotes became guardian dogs for his sheep because he actually found out that while he thought it was always coyotes that were predating, it was actually eagles. People don't often like to think about eagles as, as predators. They are big time predators. They will take lambs. In Glacier National Park, I was there one time and they were talking about how eagles will dive bomb the cliffs where mountain goats are to get the mountain goats to fall so that they can consume them. Like, they're brilliant predators. And so people don't always think about, oh, a big bird is actually what's taking my sheep and not this little coyote. But anyway, so he had he'd always killed the coyotes that came near his pasture. And then one time he saw that his sheep were not agitated by the coyote being nearby. So he kind of watched the coyote, like, what's it going to do? And he found out, oh, it's really attracted to like some of the afterbirth that gets left out in the field, or it's just eating the mice that are nearby. I mean, it's not actually bothering the sheep at all. And then later, so he left it alive. And then later he started seeing, oh, it's now the eagles. The eagles are actually the thing that the sheep are worried about. The eagles are the ones predating. And then he saw the coyote actually chasing off the eagles, that they were guarding the sheep. And so, you know, big thing in coexistence is livestock guardian dogs, you know, that people have like a Pyrenees or a Kangal, and they'll have them and they'll protect the flock from canids. Well, in this case, he's like, this wild canid is being a guardian for my sheep for the eagles. And one of his neighbors ended up shooting that coyote. And he was very upset because he actually saw an increase then in depredation events. And he's losing livestock because the eagles are able to come back. And eventually another coyote moved in and he saw the same process all over again. Right. And so it's one of the, I love that story because it's like he was the one of those people who was shooting every coyote. But because he paused and observed the world and watched what was actually happening with his animals and seeing that interaction and then continued to like, okay, coyote, you're gonna get you're gonna get a pass this day. And he just kept watching and seeing what happened. And it wasn't us in his ear telling him all about this stuff, although he, I don't know, may have Googled it and looked stuff up. It was just him sitting and watching and taking the time to learn that ultimately changed his mind. And so I love that story because, again, it's as I'm talking to somebody who's been on this side, I'm like, look, just next time, pause and watch, right? Just next time, wait and see. I'm not saying you don't have a right to defend your livestock, to defend your pets or your family if you are actually being threatened. But so much of what we think we see is not what we actually see. Our brains, because we were prey animals, we get flooded with adrenaline. I mean, you know, that big fish story or whatever, like our brains want to make things seem bigger because we need to know if we need to run or if we need to stand our ground and fight. And that's just how we're hardwired. And so understanding that, understanding that if we just stop and watch and take a minute and actually figure out what is happening, we might make a different decision. We might not kill something for no reason. I could talk to you for hours, but I've taken up a lot of your time already. So I like to close every episode with the same four questions. And these can either be rapid fire response if you want, or if you want to elaborate, feel free to answer however you choose. But it's the same four questions for every host. I like to see the differences that each person approaches these questions with. So the first one is simply, what part of conservation today needs our attention the most? Hmm. I would say the unloved places or the un unnoticed places. One of the things that I've discovered since my master's degree and coming back here to the Midwest is that this area has so much potential. That's why I, I first took this job when it was more focused on the Midwest is because I really think that this is an area, Iowa's lost 99% of its wild areas, its natural areas. It's almost completely under human control. If we can make a difference here, Think about what we can do in all the other states, right? All the other places in the world that for much longer than the U.S. have been under that that human colonized control. And so there's a lot of places that get a lot of love and get a lot of money and a lot of attention. I think the future is looking at those places that don't get the love and don't get the attention and putting more resources into those. As somebody who grew up on one coast and then did my master's on the other coast, the Midwest was truly treated in conservation like the lost place that will never be recovered. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, well, we tilled it all over. Who cares, right? But I've seen from working with land trusts, from working with people, the the magic that can happen if we just pay attention. You don't even have to sink a lot of money. And just paying a little bit of love and attention to a place can really transform it and create a habitat. So my next question is, 
what areas of conservation do you want to see grow? Hmm. Probably my this field that I'm in, this this middle line. When I was even in my master's program, I was one of the few that was like, okay, I really like the research. I really like the policy and I want to stand in the middle and really be translating that. There were either a lot of people who really wanted to do the science or a lot of people who really just wanted to do like the government policy side and not too many that were willing to to be that bridge. And talking to several other people who were already in the conservation field, that was one of the places where they're like, this is a growing field and a growing need. And so, yeah, so all the other conservation out there who were trying to find their place, I would say if you have an interest in talking and hearing people's stories and you can understand science and the really cool research that's happening, come join me, you know, come join the people standing there holding hands on on all sides and and communicating across divides. Awesome. That's such a big area that does need attention for sure in conservation. So for our third question, what concerns you about the future of conservation? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty sure the most thing that upsets most people or concerns most people, which is climate change, right? It's an uncertain future. And in some places, like on the coast, we know that sea level rise is going to happen and the destruction that will happen there. In other places, like here in the Midwest, it's it's that storms and uncertain precipitation cycles where things are, we can't, we, we can't even say like, you know, at least sea level rise, we go, we know exactly how much it's going to rise under these different scenarios. Here in the Midwest, you're like, I don't know what happens when the Gulf Stream's gone, right? Or the jet stream. What happens when these these stable weather patterns that have made this area so fertile and so stable are no longer in place? And we just don't fully know what's going to happen. And so that uncertainty makes it really hard to, to make decisions that are long-term, which is, in my mind, ultimately what makes an organization, a business, everything successful is being able to think long-term and take short-term losses for long-term gains. And right now we're like five years is pretty long out because we just don't know in the coming decades. Yeah. One of the biggest things for me with climate change is simply the fact that changes have always existed on earth when it comes to climate, but change this rapid hasn't. And that's what's so difficult for us to process. I feel like is that even though it might feel like it's going to happen over two or three generations, which seems long to us. That's such a fast time, such a fast span of time. And yeah. so it's happening so rapidly in comparison to historical change. Mm-hmm. Well, and like, you know, here in the Midwest, it was a stable place. It was, you know, the the middle of America was this giant, diverse grassland area. You know, it was better than Africa. I mean, all the species you see over there, we literally had them here first. And that's what it was. But just over time, as, as the climate becomes less stable, as people, you know, till all that have tilled all that down, it changes, you know, the flight patterns of birds. So you're getting less nutrients that those animals would bring in. You know, we're in the middle. It used to be that species coming, birds coming up from the Gulf would bring nutrients from the fertile oceans up, changing all of that. And then climate change is going to throw it even further out of whack as we just realize what's happened and we're trying to fix things. Climate change is going to, you know, knock us all off our feet again. And to know that it's us causing that, right, that we've started too late, but we're going to keep trying because there's still hope of of mitigating. It's, it's soul crushing, but at the same time, you have to be like, I can still make a difference. I have to. Like, There's literally no other option. <laughs> That's for sure. And so then my last question is, what's your advice to future conservationists? Yeah, I mean, going off of what I just said, which is don't give up, find the light, find the hope, find your reason. And also, I would say on, you know, not just for the conservation, you know, work that we do every day, but to take time for yourself. This is a field of high burnout. This is a field where it's tough to get a job, tough to get a, you know, good paying job. And part of that is the history of what's happened in our field and how it quickly came up in the 70s and has all changed. And just know that on the personnel side, there's going to be a cultural revolution, as well as as we face down these these threats of climate change and and, and uncertain politics, there's there's always going to be change. If there's one thing in life, it's that change is constant and you just have to keep keep pushing through, but taking time to to keep yourself in the fight, right? Doing self-care. And expanding off of this, I'd love to end with 
those who are listening to this who want to get involved in one way or another, whether that is a way to get involved with Project Coyote or other ways that you'd advise those who are listening to this and want to be involved in uh, rewilding and carnivore conflict, what's the best way for people to get involved? So when I talk about rewilding, I talk about it's a spectrum, right? On one end, you have the people who say, bulldoze everything over, pave it over, make it a concrete jungle. Don't care about nature or wildlife anymore. We'll just simulate everything. And then on the other side, you have people who say, get rid of all humans and let the earth just go back. Those are two extreme options. In the middle is a whole suite of options. And this is the, the rewilding, the conservation journey. And all you have to do is find the first step you can take. For my sister, it was getting out of fast fashion, getting a sewing machine, and learning how to recycle and upcycle her clothing. For my brother, it was getting an EV vehicle, right? Find your first start on this journey, and then get comfortable with that and learn how you can take the next step, how you can climb those ladders that in my head and on my whiteboard, I'm drawing out. Find the people like us who will help you take the next step. And that's how you can you can get into it, how you can keep growing. So talk to you. And I encourage everybody to talk local. Groups like mine that are working decentralized, we don't always have a lot of capacity to take on volunteers. But there's always a group local that will need your help on the ground doing things in the community. Find that, grow that. If one shoe doesn't fit, try another. I, I foster puppies for a local organization because I have the space and the capacity and time to do that. And that's one way I can make a difference in my community, the lives of these animals and get them a right start um, so that they're ready for adoption. Find that small thing that you can do um, that will make a big impact. That's how you got to start. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. Thank you so much for your time. I have really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks. It was nice chatting with you too. 